you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together to Colossians 3. Colossians 3, our, our passage tonight, verses 5 to 11. Last week, Robert looked at the first four verses, uh, which really are the, the centerpiece of the book, um, that we've been raised with Christ. And because that's the case, we seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the Father's right hand, and our lives are hid with God in Christ. And in many ways, the, the passage we're going to look at tonight, the paragraph really we're looking at tonight, is in the light of what is true, what are we to do? How do we, how do we pursue gospel holiness in the light of this, of this glorious word that we have in the first four verses of the chapter? But before we turn our attention to Colossians 3, verses 5 to 11, we need the help of the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come tonight as your people, already having praised you, already having testified concerning your faithfulness and your goodness. Now, Lord, we, we need to hear the word of the Lord. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray, come, open our eyes of faith this, this evening. May we see glorious riches in, in this portion of your gospel Lord, please grant us your grace, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So often when advertisers and, and those who have a real interest in public health want to get your attention about something, uh, something that can do your harm, they, they, those who are passionate will tell you that this thing, whatever it may be, can kill you. And so, drunk driving kills, cancer kills, drugs kill. Of course, all that's true. All, all those things do kill. But I wonder if we step back to consider that sin and, and sinning kills. Well, you probably have thought about, not thought about sin and sinning with, with that sort of seriousness. I mean, we, we, we recognize it in the macro sense because, of course, at the very heart of the gospel is that we are sinners who deserve the wrath of God. And Jesus came and he died in our place so that, so that we might be forgiven and we might be free from sin. And in our confession of faith this morning, in our statement of faith, we had the catechism questions concerning sin as, as any lack of conformity unto or, or transgression of the law of God, and, and that our first parents sinned by taking the forbidden fruit. And so, so we are certainly people who know about sin and sinning and, and the effects that it has on our eternal destiny. But, but I wonder if we've stepped back to think about how sin and sinning could continues to have this danger for us that, 
that our sin, our, our indwelling bent toward ourselves, toward our own way, how it manifests itself in, in the indulgence of the flesh, and, and when it does so, it can kill us. I've used this quote before, but, but John Owen, who is one of the great English Puritans of the post-Reformation era, he, he, he observed this. He said, the choicest believers who are assuredly free from the, from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. So do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. You see, Owen is right, and this, this passage teaches us this. Sin will kill us. The indulgence of the flesh will kill us. It'll wreck your life. It'll wreck your family. It'll wreck your church. It'll wreck your future. Friends, we must never let ourselves believe that sin is not serious. It is. It's deadly. We're in a battle for our lives, a war against our natural bent, which is conspiring to destroy us. And we must never think that God is not serious about sin. He is. He's deadly serious about sin, so much so that he, he sent his son, the one with whom he, he shares his being eternally. He sent his son to die for sin. Sin kills. Sin killed Jesus, after all. And the Apostle Paul knows all of this. It's actually the one place with which he agrees with the false teachers who have come to Colossae. He, Paul believes that sin is dangerous, as does the, the false teachers. We saw that at the end of chapter 3, excuse me, at the end of chapter 2, that, that in order to deal with sin, which is so serious, remember, the false teachers had offered a combination of, of three different pathways, legalism, asceticism, and mysticism. And this strange combination of legalism, asceticism, and mysticism brought together Jewish teaching and some faith in Jesus Christ and the manipulation of the basic elements of the world, and it mixes it all together in this kind of homebrew spirituality. But Paul said at the end of chapter 2 that that, that prescription, it was dangerous and yet futile. It, it could not actually solve the problem Paul said at the end of Colossians 2, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. By, by contrast, as Robert unpacked last time, in the first four verses of chapter 3, Paul points to the only way the only way there is to, to stop the indulgence of the flesh, and it's by coming again and again and again to Jesus, and coming again and again to who we are in Jesus Christ, and living in the light of that. And so we saw in, in chapter 3 that when you trust in Jesus and are united to him, you're united in his dying and rising again. Paul says in verse 3, you have died. Verse 1, you have been raised. Verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And because of this, we're, we're to think differently. We're to live differently. We're to seek the things that are above where Christ is. We're to set our minds on the things that are above, not, not on the things that are on earth. And so it's in the light of that new identity, shaped by virtue of our union with Jesus, our relationship with him, 
this new mindset centered on the, the rule of Jesus in our lives, that God calls us to war against our sin and against our sinning, against the indulgence of the flesh, against every practice, every way of life that's contrary to the gospel. Now, in order to get at that, Paul speaks in, in two different ways. We're going to see first, he, he talks about the what and the why. But then second, he's going to tell us that the why is the how. Keep those two things in mind. So first, the what and the why, or what is this warfare against our sin? What does it look like? And why are we to do this? What, what does this look like, this warfare against our sin? Why are we to do this? Those are the two basic questions that Paul is trying to answer in verses 5 to 9. So let, let's answer the first question first. What does this look like? What does this war against our sin, seeking to put our sin to death, what does it look like? Well, Paul tells us in verse 5, it looks like killing, right? That's what verse 5 says. Your Bible's still open. You see it? He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Of course, putting anything to death involves a certain kind of, of ruthlessness, but especially putting sin to death. Putting sin to death requires ruthlessness, and it really only makes sense if you and I actually truly believe that sin and sinning will kill us if we don't cut it off first. Back in May 2003, there was a, a hiker named Aaron Ralston. He was hiking alone in the Canyonland National Re Park near Moab, Utah. And as he worked his way through a three-foot-wide slot canyon, a boulder weighing 800 pounds came tumbling down, and it actually fell and pinned his right arm. He couldn't move. He was stuck. He waited for rescue for hours, but the rescuers couldn't find him. He had drunk all his water, and he was beginning to lose hope of rescue. And so in that moment— Fearful that he would not be discovered, he would not be rescued, he was going to die, Aaron made a decision. He took out his pocket knife and he amputated his right arm below the elbow. He then applied a tourniquet, administered first aid to his now stump, and hiked until he found other hikers who could get him out of the canyons. Now, now why in the world did Aaron Ralston take such a drastic step? of cutting his own arm off. Well, he told rescuers that he realized that he would not survive unless he took drastic action. If he didn't cut his arm off, he knew he would die. But listen, if you and I don't take drastic action against our sin, if we don't cut our sin off, if we don't put it to death with a certain kind of ruthlessness, what Paul is telling us here is you will die. Paul here mentions two classes of sins that we're, we're to put to death, with which we are to be ruthless. The first class are sexual sins. You see that in verse 5. See it? He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. This cluster of descriptions for sexual sin is, is meant to describe the full range of longing for illegitimate sexual pleasure and experience. Paul says, these must be put to death. Why? Because these sexual sins will kill you. So let's be really plain here. Sexual immorality 
impurity, passion, evil desire, greediness for sexual pleasure, they will kill you. Pornography will kill you. Novels or movies or television shows that depict sexual immorality and sensuality and stir it up in you will kill you. Lustful looks, fantasizing, oogling, canoodling, flirtatious internet or texting conversations with someone other than your spouse, they will kill you. Those are the sins that Paul's talking about. These are the sins that are to be put to death. Sexual sins must be killed or they will kill you. But there's another class of sins here that Paul talks about, that that he encourages us to go on and put to death. Those are interpersonal sins. Look at verse 8. Paul says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you put off the old self with its practices. And so what, what Paul's picturing here with these interpersonal sins, it is a repeated pattern of critical, harsh, and abusive speech that either maligns or deceives others. And so again, let's be clear. It's sinful to scream and vent at each other in rage. It's sinful to kneel each other sarcastically and cuttingly to draw an angry reaction, to push someone's buttons. It's, it's sinful to slander someone's reputation, to characterize someone with a curse or with abusive words, to, to demonstrate repeated patterns of contempt for someone else. It, it's sinful to lie and to deceive, to twist words out of context, to take them and to abuse someone with them, to lie about someone. These are sins, Paul says, that will kill you. Interpersonal sins like these, he says, must be put to death. That's why he says, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you that remains to the old way of life. We need to put them to death. We must destroy them or they will destroy us. But, but why are we to do this? Why? If he, this is the what, put to death sexual sins and interpersonal sins. But why? Why are we to do it? He gives us two reasons why we're to put these sins to death. First, he tells us because the wrath of God is coming on account of these sins, right? That's what he says in verse 6. On account of these, he says, the wrath of God is coming. You, You can't get any more serious than that, can you? God's wrath, his hot displeasure is coming because of these kinds of sins, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that God is an avenger of these kinds of sins. God takes these sins seriously. That's why we're to put them to death. But there's a second reason Paul gives us. We are to put these sins to death because though we once lived this way, we don't live this way anymore. That's what he says in verse 7. He says, in these two you once walked when you were living in them, but that's your old way. These sins characterize who you used to be, how you used to live when you were under the dominion of darkness, when you were under the domain of darkness, as Paul says in in chapter 1, verse 13, or when you were under the authority of the rulers and authorities of the evil one, chapter 2, verse 15. But though you lived that way once before, now you've come to Jesus Christ. Now you've put your faith in him. Now you've turned from your idols and your sin, and you've run to Jesus Christ, and, and so you don't have to live that way anymore. 
In fact, what Paul is trying to tell us here is that you have a new power and a new ability to say no to sin and to put it to death where you didn't have it before you came to Christ. In fact, what we have to see then is, is the why is the how. We talked about the what and the why, but, but the why is the how. Because the natural question that comes to us is, how are we to put to death our sin? How are we to do this? And we naturally think, well, here's how we put our sin to death. We develop new rules for ourselves, or we starve or abuse our bodies, or, or we separate ourselves from others and, and withdrawal, or we, we seek some kind of new spiritual experience. But guess what? Those are the failing and dangerous prescriptions of the false teachers of, of Colossae. Legalism, asceticism, and mysticism. No. What we must see, as my friend Brian Chappell puts it, is that the why is the how. He writes this, as we try to explain to people how God can help them overcome entangling sins, we must help them see that the why is the how. Engaging in spiritual warfare because of a compelling love from God is how we secure victory over sin. You see? Because of our new identity in Jesus Christ, because we've died, because we've been raised, because we are now seated in the heavenly places with Christ, because our lives are hidden with Christ in God, because all of this is true, because of the new power that comes from the indwelling Christ, this is how he puts sin to death. The why is the how. The why is that we are new persons. I mean, that's what Paul says, isn't it? Look at verse 10. Look at what Paul says. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. Now, this, this past tense language, I think, is really important here, as well as the, the language of the old self and the new self. And Paul has said, you have already put off the old self. You've put off your old identity. The old identity is shamed and guilty and contemptuous and lustful, hateful, spiteful, implacable, greedy, angry, sinner. You've put all of that off, as well as all of the practices that went with it, like a suit of clothes that you take off, you've already put it off. When you came to Jesus Christ and you put your faith in him, you've put off that old self and that old identity and that old way of living. When you turned to Jesus with spirit-wrought faith, you were united to him in his crucifixion, and all that was true of you before was nailed on that cross. As Paul says in, in Colossians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. What does that mean but that your old way and your old identity has already been nailed to the cross. It's already dead. And you've already put on a new identity, this new self, so that your mind, your thinking, your knowing, it's being renewed after God's image. And so because of that, your practices, your way of living, they need to be correspond. Think of, think of it this way. When you were married, your identity changed. For those of you who are married, when, before you were a single guy or, or a single girl, but, but then you get married and this new identity comes and, and this transition then brings with this new identity new practices that go with the identity of being married. Just describing this from the perspective of a guy who at least mm, 28 years ago went from being single to being married 
I can give you my perspective on what changed. Uh, you went from having the bed all to yourself to sharing with someone else, especially someone who has really cold feet and likes to stick them on you. Uh, you went from spending your money the way you wanted to on yourself, buying books with abandon, and now you have to share your money and make decisions that serve you as a couple. At least in our instance, it still allows me to buy books with abandon. And suddenly you've learned to pick up after yourself, at least most of the time, and how to clean up after yourself most of the time. Why? Why has all that changed? Well, because my identity changed. I became a new person because I'm, I've entered into a lifetime relationship. The old has passed away. The new has come. And along with that, certain practices have had to change to match this new identity that of going from single to married. Well, in the same way, the why, your, your new identity in Jesus Christ, is you are, if you will, married to him, united to him, that, that why becomes the how of putting on new practices. You no longer allow yourself to engage in sexual sin or interpersonal sin. Why? Because, because there's a new identity. You've gone from the old self to the new self, from lost to found, from abandoned to rescued, from sinner to saved. And now as a, a, a follower of Jesus Christ, as a new person, you now live in new ways. You see, this, this new identity, it relativizes all other identities. These things are still certainly true, and yet they're no longer as true as this most important thing. Verse 11, here there's not Greek nor, and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Oh, Christ is in all, right? So that our identities and practices are now shaped by that, that world-changing reality, and we relate to one another differently because we share this fundamental identity in Christ. But Christ is all. He's all. With a, and He dwells in us with, with new power, new energy to live differently, to put to death our sin, to put on the new ways of living. That, that's the centerpiece of this book, that Jesus the supreme Jesus lives in you. Paul said in Colossians 1.27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is what? Christ in you. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Yes, he is sufficient and satisfying, but he dwells in you by his spirit in such a way that he gives you a new power, resurrection power, the same power that called worlds into existence and raised dead men to life. That power is in you by the virtue of, of your relationship with Jesus, of Christ's union with you and his dwelling in you. Friends, here is real power for stopping the indulgence of the flesh, far realer than legalism, asceticism, and mysticism. Here is the work of Christ in us as he fills our vision and our hearts full. Here is power so that we might live by putting sin to death before it kills us here. Here's the hope of glory. Here's the good news. Christ in you. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please?
Lord Jesus, we do bless you for this good news that there really is a way forward for us as your followers, a way to stop the indulgence of the flesh and to live lives that look and savor like Jesus. Lord, we do pray that you would encourage our hearts tonight. You don't call us to to something that is is now foreign to us. Before, under sin's dominion, there was no way. Our our wills were captive and bound to our, our deceitful desires. But now you've set us free. Set us free through the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection of Jesus. And because of our union with him, you you actually have given us new power to live differently as a result. Lord, we bless you. And so, Lord, we we ask you as we close this day, be thou our vision, O Lord of our hearts, high King of heaven, please come, fill our vision full so that we might follow after you with joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand together with me as we sing together?